My name is Trish Trees, and this is Ordinary, a place to have transparent, sometimes imperfect, inspiring conversations about the journeys we're taking to reach our career goals. This podcast is a collection of stories about ordinary people and the tools that they use to succeed at work. So consider me your curator and enjoy the episode. Support for Ordinary is brought to you by CMG Partners, a strategic consulting firm that believes in the potential of every employee and enterprise that's working to get better. Today, I talked to Ryan King. Ryan has spent the majority of his career being forced to adapt, and no matter what kind of curveballs are thrown at him, he has seemed to have mastered the art of blooming wherever he's planted. As a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute and a major in the Marine Corps, Ryan's multiple deployments never let him get too comfortable in one place. But after 16 years of serving out of college, Ryan decided to begin medical school at the University of South Dakota and work towards his dream of becoming a doctor. After family illness and loss caused him to take a temporary leave from his program, he began his own successful business in an unfamiliar town that he found himself in. Today, Ryan talks to us about how to adapt quickly to unexpected change, taking risks, and making the most out of situations that are out of your control. I am so excited to introduce today's guest. Um, Hi, Ryan. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks, Trish. Uh, Appreciate that introduction. (laughs) Yeah, well, Lindsay, who is our mutual friend who introduced us, she described Ryan to me as someone who had lived many lives. (laughs) And when I did some digging on you, I I had to agree. You have a very colored uh, story, and I'm interested in kind of hearing a little bit more about it. So Let's just kick things off. Um, I know you're an entrepreneur. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I definitely have a, a checkered past. Uh, kind of uh, dabbled in in a variety of different uh, areas, but uh, yeah, my most recent venture is uh, becoming a small business owner, and uh, I'm doing that out here in the Midwest in South Dakota, which is a place I had never been to before until I came <laughs> out here for medical school. Uh, so, you know, the whole process of, you know, one, just getting to know new people in a place that honestly, I don't know anyone within 2000 miles to, to starting a business and developing a network uh, all stemmed from an idea I had when I had to take a leave of absence from medical school this time last year. So I started a business. It's called Stampede Shuttle. And essentially the mission is to uh, provide transportation between the major airport and business centers out here in the Siouxland. Uh, connecting, uh, well, currently connecting Sioux Falls, Sioux City, and Omaha. And uh, I came up with the idea uh, during my struggles with tr- uh, getting transportation out of the area when I had to go down to Florida and uh, help with my father's failing health uh, this time last year. And I couldn't understand uh, why there wasn't any transportation that exists between three major airports that are only separated by 180 miles. And some of that idea came from my experience when I was at graduate school in Monterey, California, where I was familiar with the system that existed between Monterey, uh, San Jose, and San Francisco as far as airport travel. So that's kind of how the business idea started. And, uh, and I started looking into the research, and there essentially is no competition. So here I am, started a, <laughs> a new business, and basically fighting the fact that people uh, don't necessarily know we exist. And that's our biggest uh, 
battle is letting people know that we do exist. There is transportation service now in the area, and we're providing it at a, a three to four times cheaper cost than you can get with a rideshare. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So there's not a strong rideshare presence in that area? It's, I'll tell you what, South Dakota is definitely a little bit, uh, I would say, slower as far as getting up to speed with the times. I'm used to living in you know, Southern California, Northern California. I grew up on the East Coast in, in relatively larger cities. And then right. certainly my travels throughout the world. And, you know, I'm, I'm used to public transportation system. I'm used to Lyft and Uber and uh, I guess whatever else they have out there. But South Dakota just got approval for Uber to come into the state last August. They have had Lyft here, but it's only in certain cities. And cities is, you know, relatively uh, small compared to, you know, say Los Angeles or whatnot, where there's 30 million people. We only have 850,000 thousand people in the entire state of South Dakota. So the city of Sioux Falls is around 250,000 and they're used to Lyft, but they're not really used to Uber. So that's kind of what we're dealing with right now is, is a population that's trying to get used to the, the ride shares that exist, but now our transportation service that exists as well. And your service is a little bit more trusted. You can probably plan ahead, um, more reliable than a ride share that you could look around and have no, no ride options potentially. No, And that's, that absolutely has happened to me. Uh, I was trying to get down to Orlando, uh, as I said, this time last year, and I had booked a travel from Sioux city airport at, it was an early flight. I think it was at 5. AM and I'm sitting on a farm who was a med school friend's family's house. I had locked on the, it wasn't even a ride share. It was taxi transportation. So which I thought was a little bit more reliable because I was on a <laughs> schedule booked the reservation 13 hours in advance and I'm sitting there at the threshold of about to miss my flight. And I had to jump in my car and go to the airport and pay uh, three weeks worth of parking fees because the guy just didn't show to pick me up. And that's miserable. Exactly. So frustrating, (laughs) um, you know, especially, you know, making the coordination to to have transportation available, it doesn't show up and then you almost miss your flight is uh, a little frustrating to say the least, but absolutely to your point is that we operate as a bus system we have predetermined pickup and drop off locations that operates on a timetable. So that gives a little bit more reliability to the customers because they do have to book uh, at least four hours in advance. Um, and then they can, you know, hop on the shuttle. We'll pick them up on time. We'll drop them off on time and they can be rest assured that, uh, you know, a driver and a vehicle will show up to get them to their destination. Right. Save the mini panic attack of, of potentially missing your flight. Exactly. And, and nothing's worse than when you log on and even some of the major areas, if you, if you have an earlier or late night and you log on and there's just no drivers available and you're like, okay, now what do I do? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I've totally been there. Um, sure, you, sure. you mentioned it kind of just having an idea out of an, out of a, out of a need, but you weren't really in a place in your life to be starting a business, probably being in school. How did you kind of take that idea and end up acting on it? Sure. Well, the, the fortunate thing was, um, you know, I guess I've been fortunate. A lot of the instances that we'll, we'll get down to discussing is that uh, I, I had the option to to talk to the administration and, and make the decision to take the leave of absence so I could go, uh, you know, help, help my father as he as he uh, as he declined. And in that process, the administration gave me a bunch of options as far as um, the opportunity to come back in school uh, that summer or to pick up where I left off because I was in a good academic standing. And even to the point where I'm executing plan C is that I have the option to go back and pick up with the class in August and still don't have to take anything for score until next February of of, uh, 2021. So that gave me a little bit more time to develop the business. Uh, The idea came up uh, 
roughly late February. So really didn't get integrated until uh, we got established with, you know, the, the licensing and the, uh, the trademark of the business was started in March and April of last year. And the painful process was actually one purchasing vehicles and the insurance uh, getting that bound so we could become operational took uh, approximately six months and they finally bound us in October. So we've only been operational for the last four and a half months. So Gosh, through that but process, still, that was, that's quick getting yeah. off the ground. Uh, relatively quick. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's where the military helped me out. You know, I was able to cash out and uh, not have to take any <laughs> loans. And, you know, it's, it's a big risk with the business, obviously putting everything out there on the line, but you know, sometimes you got to spend money to make money. And that's kind of the, uh, the mentality I have is, is, you know, putting it all out there and, and rolling the dice and the worst case, you know, I still got med school as a backup. So that's not a bad plan to have. Yeah. Not a bad plan. C. um, I that, let's let's kind of circle back to the military. So, did you enlist post college, or did you yes. go to an academy? Sure. So, uh, yeah, the t- the term enlist and commission is a little bit different. So, okay. when, when you you enlist, um, well, you, you go in as, as an enlisted. Uh, well, for me, it was the Marine Corps, so an enlisted Marine, or you know, with the Army, it's soldiers, airmen, sailor, whatever the case may be. Uh, but coming out of college, uh, when you do have a degree, you do have the option to commission. And it's just a different process of going in. Obviously, it's different responsibility, different pay, uh, different rank structure and whatnot. So I went to the Virginia Military Institute, uh, four-year college, uh, but not really a four-year college because it's a regimented military type system. But the difference between the Virginia Military Institute and the Citadel and some of the other colleges that are, are militarily structured and the and say Naval Academy, West Point, the Air Force Academy, is that our cadets are not required to go into the military upon graduation unless oh, they're on an ROTC scholarship, just like the rest of the colleges. Say if I went to University of Pittsburgh or Penn State and you know I was on an ROTC scholarship, then you are committed to go because you're in a contract. At VMI, if guys are not on an ROTC scholarship, they do not have to go into the military after graduation. So there are a lot of guys that don't do that. They go in there for the, the structure that the regimented system gives them. And then a lot of them use that network base from the alumni to go out and basically get instantaneous jobs upon graduation. Yeah. Uh, but for the rest of us that had ROTC scholarships, yeah, I commissioned in May of 2003 into the Marine Corps. And uh, you know, I was a second lieutenant at that point. And then I went to uh, the basic school in Quantico, Virginia for uh, six months worth of infantry training. Um, and then at that point, uh, I made my selection to uh, go to artillery school and out to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, I went for another six months. So, but that was wow. the process of, of, of getting through uh, Virginia Military Institute. Uh, you, you get commissioned and you come out as a second lieutenant. And, and were you one of those people that, that you spoke of, someone who chose the Virginia Military Institute for sort of the structure, or were you looking? Sure. Did you? Uh, yep. I mean, I guess kind of a sidebar story, but uh, I watched the original Top Gun because they have a <laughs> Top Gun coming out when I was six years old, and I thought that, hey, that's what I want to do. I want to be a fighter pilot, and uh, anybody that came into my childhood room, uh, they saw all the posters I had of, of you know, fighter planes and, you know, I had them all memorized and whatever the case may be. And so I grew up, I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to be a fighter pilot. So I thought that applying to a military uh, university being uh, the Naval Academy was, I had a high influence of that because I had cousins that went there and then my dad was in the Navy and, and have a bunch of other uncles that were in the service as well. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to the Naval Academy. But then I started getting uh, these flyers in the mail when I was a junior in high school 
about Virginia Military Institute and I started looking into it. I'm like, oh, this that seems like the toughest school. I think that'll be good for a career in the military. Um, plus, they got, they offered me the opportunity to play uh, Division One AA football. So I went down there, checked it out, and I really liked the small student to teacher ratio. It was uh, one to seventeen, which I thought was pretty good instead of you know, one to 100 or whatever the case may be at some of these larger places, especially even, right. even at the Naval Academy, they're pretty large student-to-teacher ratios. Uh, but the biggest thing was they gave me early acceptance. Uh, the, I think it was, yeah, in the fall of my junior year, I got early acceptance to go to Virginia Military Institute. So instead of putting the package together with the congressional nomination to the Naval Academy, I applied to that place. I got in. It is the only college I applied to. And <laughs> that was that was it. I, I checked in there in the summer of 1999 and, uh, and, and went through that uh, arduous process. Did you, I've heard, I don't know if this is the case at Virginia Military mm-hmm. Institute, but I've heard they have like a, like a plebeian year or like your first year is like especially intense. Sure. No, it absolutely is. And yeah. I think each, year's, each year is intense in its own way. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, the first year, uh, yeah, the Naval Academy of plebes, we're called rats. Okay. So, that's how so much nicer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so instead of a Latin term that just means, you know, slave, essentially, we're called rats. And uh, that's kind of how we're treated. Uh, you know, everybody has the same haircut. You shave your head uh, the first week that you get there. You say goodbye to your parents and it's called Hell Week. And, uh, you know, you get your cadre. It's, it's a pretty uh, psychologically intense process. They march you in, you're in your white t-shirt, uh, you basically put away all your belongings and the cadre runs you around for a solid week in the oh, wow. uh, warm Virginia humidity, um, you know, doing push-ups, yelling at the top of your lungs, um, you know, just basically trying to stress you out. And then there's a process of, you know, basically breaking you down and building you back up towards the way that they want to form you as far as, you know, just basic things from, you know, how you, um, you know, situate your room. Everything has its own place. Everything has to be folded a particular way. You know, shirts and pants on a hanger uh, in the closet, they have to be separated by a certain amount of fingers, all down to the nitty gritty detail. And that is an everyday system uh, to include having to get up and go to formation three times a day. And then on top of that, you're taking classes in a normal curriculum and you you cannot be late to class. Um, That is... (laughs) That is not allowed. You will be punished. Uh, if you are second late, you have to report yourself. And all that's based on an honor code system, which actually, what's one of the biggest things I held near and dear was the honor system that they had there at the Virginia Institute is uh, cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. And there are no exceptions. Um, and that's also a psychological experience when you have the honor court kick in your door and every cadet's door to senior classmen as well at about two in the morning in the middle of your sleep to a drum roll and then everyone comes out onto the stoops which actually looks like a prison and you're in the courtyard listening to the honor court say that cadet so-and-so has been found guilty of whatever the charge was and his name will never be mentioned here again oh my gosh and it's it's intense and that's extremely intense it is yep there's only one shot and uh, if you violate that honor code you're out we don't have locks on our rooms. We keep our wallets in our covers. Everything is unsecured. And it's just based off the fact that the honor code system is in place and, and um, cadets aren't supposed to do that stuff. So Yeah, and it sets that firm black and white line of, of ethics. It and I, it sounds grueling, but I'm sure, I mean, it's, <laughs> I'm sure you can attest to like the character that a structure like that brings. Um, no, so, um, so you mentioned Top Gun. Did you end up, 
What did your military career look like post-graduation? So, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I had the dreams that, uh, you know, I was going to get a flight contract and go down there uh, to, to the basic school upon graduation. And, uh, and, and once I got out of the basic school, I'd be off the flight school. Uh, but what happened was uh, I'm not necessarily the best uh, standardized test taker, per se, <laughs> despite all the schooling that I've done. Uh, I just I'm not I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I just I think I, I just try the hardest in some of these cases. But so I didn't get the best score. I missed passing, uh, getting a guaranteed contract by literally one point. And so I went down to the basic school thinking that I could retake the test and from there be able to get a flight contract coming out of the basic school. And then off I'd go, uh, you know, whatever, being like Top Gun and, and Maverick as <laughs> may be. But uh, that ended up not happening uh, because I wasn't actually allowed to take the test again before we had to do our military occupational specialty selection uh, MOS for short. So when that time came and we were doing the mock trial for the selection, I put pilot number one and my uh, student platoon commander came down and said, hey, you know, not to give your hopes up, but the way you rank now in the company, if this were next week, this time, you'd be on your way to flight school. And I was like, great, that's awesome news. So Q seven days later, and obviously nothing stays the same in the Marine Corps. Things change on a, you know an hourly basis, essentially, just like anything else. Uh, did the same selections for the real trial and uh, came back. And for whatever reason, my uh, my platoon commander found me again in the, in the chow hall later that night after everybody got home. He's like, hey, King, you got to change your selection. I was wrong. Uh, you have to have a flight contract and you had to take the test, which obviously we didn't offer to you again. So you're going to have to go change all your selections. And I'm like, well, what's available? And he's like, well, you have tanks and there's only two spots out of 200 students that uh, get selected for tanks or you have artillery which is uh, around 10 people get selected for that so i was like all right so i put tanks number one and i essentially essentially got my my top choice because i thought tanks was a long shot and i ended up getting artillery so that's what sent me off from uh, the basic school and out to oklahoma for artillery training um certainly i was disappointed in that uh in that process because i thought i was going to get another shot because i know guys that had waivers for more than one point waivers for health eyesight whatever the case may be and they had flight contracts but um, looking back, you know, I'm glad I got that opportunity. I wouldn't have changed anything after, after knowing uh, the experiences that I've had and the, and the, and the Marines that I got to lead and the positions I've held, uh, based off that. So I don't know if someone's looking over my shoulder or not, but that sent me down the road of, of many other things that, uh, allowed me to develop as a leader and also as, uh, as a planner and get to the point where I'm at now is like I said, doing the things that I transferred from the military into the small business planning as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you actually ended up getting deployed a couple of times. Is that right? That's true. Yep. I, uh, so once I got out of artillery school, I, I checked into Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. I was down there for three years and uh, immediately got assigned to a unit that was going to deploy to Fallujah, Iraq. And we went over there as an artillery battery. Uh, I got to see a lot of action, um, you know, certainly learned a lot while I was over there. And then once I came back, I got assigned to go to a different unit. And next thing I know, I'm packing my bags. I'm heading out to uh, Okinawa, Japan for six months of uh, training out there. Got to see a little bit of uh, Southeast Asia and, uh, and do some uh, training in some pretty austere conditions. But uh, so, yeah, that was a good experience for the first three years I was in, uh, in the East Coast. And then transferred out to the West Coast, uh, did a three-year tour in uh, Orange County, Seal Beach. And I got the opportunity to be in charge of a reserve unit. And we activated and actually deployed to Afghanistan in 2009. And I ended up being the uh, battery commander for that deployment. And we got to go as artillery as well and, and, and do our mission in uh, Southern Helmand province. 
Um, coming back, I got selected to go to Expeditionary Warfare School for a year in Quantico, Virginia. And then uh, from there, they sent me back out to uh, Camp Pendleton, Southern California. And I got to go to uh, assignment to a rocket battalion. But instead, they sent me on a civil affairs tour. Next thing you know, I'm packing my bags and I'm heading back to Afghanistan for uh, eight-month deployment of civil affairs. So everything I blew up in 2009, I had to go back and fix in 2011 and 2012 as civil affairs. And a lot of that stuff dealt with project management, reconstruction efforts, and the Afghanistan reintegration program with the Taliban. Oh, wow. It basically sounds like you're just being continuously put in situations that are totally out of your control, locations. and Yep. yep. Absolutely. (laughs) So, and that's one thing, um, you know, we like to say the cliche is, especially as an officer, because uh, uh, they they, they switch you around a lot. So roughly you're moving every two to three years. And so basically you become a a jack of all trades, but a master of none. (laughs) You know, there's, there's not a lot of depth in some of the things you get exposed to. Uh, but you have to really, you know, basically I do a lot of listening up front because there's certainly guys that are in those capacities that know a lot more about, about uh, things than I do, Just, no matter what the rank is. That's one thing that I learned is uh, a lot of times, you know, guys will come in and, and try and, you know, pump their chest with their rank and show their shiny right. collars. But I always look at the guy that has the most black on his collar, which means he's the most senior enlisted which means he's been around a lot longer than most of the guys in the room combined. So he's the guy that I want to listen to, but you also want to listen to the junior guys because they have ideas at the, at the execution level that you might not be thinking about. And I can't tell you how many times that I've, I've changed my mind at a planning meeting or even with my staff based on the Lance corporal, even the PFC coming in the room and saying, Hey, does this make sense? And when he says, no, it's like, okay, we're changing the plan to whatever makes sense for this guy. And so yeah. those, those are some of the leadership skills I learned uh, in that process of bouncing around a lot is you get a lot of time to listen and, and, and you should take that time to listen. And then once you get involved and, and understand what's going on, that's when you can effectively insert yourself to, uh, to correct things if they're wrong, encourage things if they're right, and then uh, and be part of the solution in those processes. But yeah, definitely got a, a lot of chance to bounce around. Um, uh, in fact, I just finished my 20th move in 20 years. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. So I know, I know how to pack up and move out. It, you seem like relatively... Uh, you've managed to seriously adapt. You seem like a bit impervious to all of these changes. Have you ever been like stopped in your tracks and been like, no, I, I, I just don't want to change right now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm pretty stubborn uh, by nature and uh, I can, I can be pretty headstrong, but uh, what I try to do when I, when I feel that coming on and I'm like, no, I'm not going to change my mind. No matter what somebody says, I, I sleep on it. And then I, I, I come to a little bit more calmer terms. But in this business world that I'm facing right now as, as a small business owner, yeah, every day I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Uh, right. Small things of, of just, um, you know, payment processes or, or hiring processes. I'm like, no, I'm not going to change. And the next thing I know, I'm like, okay, I, I just changed five minutes ago. But, uh, it, you know, I guess I, I don't tie myself down to a particular way because I, I don't know all the answers. So that's, I think the biggest thing is remaining flexible because there's always going to be a better answer out there. I certainly don't have all the answers. So that's where I'm looking at people. And, and like I said, the biggest thing is, is just opening up your ears and your eyes to things that come down the road and then taking advantage of that. And, and hopefully it, it turns out for the best. Right. Well, it's a muscle that you have to work, okay. being able to be flexible, being able to adapt. Uh, it's not easy, but it sounds like you've got some really good practice and I'm sure it, it, it benefits you in your business. Um, 
So at what point did you know that it was that you were ready to leave the military? Did you decide? Yeah. So essentially, um, on my, my last combat tour to Afghanistan in 2012, that's when, uh, my father got diagnosed with Alzheimer's while I was on that deployment. And so coming back stateside, I started, well, I had also gotten selected for the rank of major. So I was a captain at the time. I got selected for the rank of the major. And so a lot of uh, variables were coming together that started, um, you know, I guess I just started listening and like I said, being more observant and, and also listening to my senior officers uh, of as far as how the culture and the, uh, the policies and, and opportunities were changing in the Marine Corps. And what happened was we were starting to go through a drawdown phase and, you know, basically with, with the family issues and the, the promotion thing that happened was that once I got selected for major, it took several months to pin that rank on. And then that time frame of a roughly, uh, I think it was almost, almost a year essentially before from selection to, to pinning on the rank, the requirements for retirement changed. So up until that point, because that was 10 years up until that point, uh, if you made the rank of staff sergeant on the enlisted side or major on the officer side, you were guaranteed retirement as long as you served, you know, honorably up to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And in that time frame, that message changed to you were no longer guaranteed retirement. So for twice passed over officers, meaning you get looked at for the rank of lieutenant colonel once. And then if you don't make it that year, you get another year until the next board and you have only one other opportunity to make that rank. And at that point, with the new change, if you didn't make the rank of lieutenant colonel, the Marine Corps had the opportunity to say, well, thanks for playing. Here's your severance package, no retirement, no benefits, and you're out. And for me, as an artillery officer, the first look I was going to get was six years down the road. So to me, I was like, this seems like an incredible gamble to risk potentially six to seven more years of my life for something that's no longer a guarantee. And based on that and how my family's, uh, like I said, my father's health situation was going, I immediately started taking classes and I started prepping for what I thought was going to be the next career path. And uh, I started looking at medicine and I made that choice based off of (laughs) one, something that I was always interested in in high school, you know, biology, chemistry and whatnot. Uh, I did relatively good in those subjects, but I was a poli-sci undergrad uh, because I, you know, I thought I was going to be in the Marine Corps my whole uh, career. And uh, with the poli-sci undergrad, all I did was write a bunch of papers. <laughs> and right. getting into the hard sciences, per se, was, was definitely uh, a big change for me. I mean, I'm talking about having to take Calculus 101. I hadn't had calculus since I was a junior in high school, I think it was. So we're talking, you know, almost 15 years out of, uh, out of high school that I'm having to relearn a lot of this stuff just to get the prerequisites so I could even get looked at and considered for medical school. So that started my path of what was six years of night classes, and I, I transferred to six different institutions uh, because of the Marine Corps um, movements as well. So it required me to keep changing schools as I was, I was transitioning billets in the Marine Corps. And uh, I did not expect that I was going to be sent to Naval Postgraduate School to get my master's degree because that's the last thing I wanted to do was take on a prerequisite pre-med requirement and then have to do my master's and a thesis on top of that. They um, made you? Yep, they selected me. Oh my God. So I got I got selected, and when they say selected, that means you're being told to go up there. I mean, it, it is a great opportunity. Right. Uh, those plans I already had made, and it was already two years down the road in those classes. Uh, it was kind of a curveball, and of course. It, 
definitely, uh, it, it was, it was, it was extremely difficult. Probably one of the toughest things I had to do was, um, hunker down and write this thesis. And, uh, and, and, and basically I totally underestimated what grad school was going to be like. It was, it was, it was difficult, but then on top of that, taking the night classes, uh, with a full course load on the grad school side and then doing all the prerequisites on top of that was, was, was pretty challenging, but powered through that. And then, uh, like I said, just, uh, with the focus, the last two years of, of my uh, career was, uh, you know, completing the assignments I had in the Marine Corps, but also working on the process of, uh, getting into medical school and then, uh, making sure that I had a, a, a clean break with the resignation so I could start med school and, and uh, be out of the Marine Corps. So. That is completely incredible. Um, I, I can't even imagine applying to med school while still in graduate school process. Um, did you have a general idea of like a specialty or a focus that, that you wanted to do in medicine or did you just knew that you wanted to take care of people and kind of selected that route? No, sure. I, I, uh, my, my first take was, you know, Hey, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And then, uh, when I started, why is that? It, um, surgery always interested me. Uh, I, I played a lot of hockey and rugby growing up. In fact, actually, I just uh, finished my last rugby match right before I got into medical school, but I had gone through the surgeries and the injuries and whatnot. And I always thought it was fascinating how the docs were able to come in and, and do what they do to, to repair people and basically get them back into a condition where they're almost as if, uh, you know, they're, they're brand new and whole again. So that stuff always interested me. Um, so I thought, you know, going down the surgery route would be cool. You know, people get I guess, queasy or, or a little taken aback by some of the stuff that's involved with surgery, but not me. I love all that stuff. I just look at it from a systems perspective. And once, you know, you start going under the scalp where everything to me is, is completely fascinating inside the human body. So I, I really like that stuff. But, uh, you know, once I got into the point of actually getting in, into medical school and after a lot of shadow work with uh, a bunch of surgeons and stuff like that, I started thinking, well, I'm getting pretty old. And uh, <laughs> the, the path to go down to be an orthopedic surgeon is roughly 12 years. And right. it's, a, it's a little bit less with an anesthesiologist because it's, it's, you don't have necessarily uh, the requirements to go through the, the multiple fellowships and whatnot with, this, with the specialties of the surgery. So I was like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense because I don't want to be 50 by the time I'm practicing, which at this point, that's what it would be. Anyways, <laughs> but uh, that was like, you know what, that guy's got a, a, a you know, I guess what, what happened with me especially was my mind was changing. And I guess like we were talking about adaptation was that the circumstances revolving around uh, my father's health and then, you know, the stability I was actually seeking because I had zero uh, throughout about 20 years of my career through the military Institute right. and also in the Marine Corps was that I, I didn't see surgery as being a very stable lifestyle, which was something I was looking for. Even though anesthesiologists, if I, if I could talk correctly here, even though anesthesiologists um, are, you know, involved in a ton of procedures that involve surgery, they're, they're more or less involved in a, a set schedule. So the quality of life is something that I thought was a little bit more important than uh, necessarily pursuing the, a longer term of, uh, of schooling and whatnot. So that's, that's where I started looking. I was like, you know what, this guy's in the room. He's, he's seeing all the procedures anyways. And uh, he's, he's, he's making some pretty decent money. And from the chemistry perspective and the interaction with the patient, I was like, you know what, that's, that's kind of everything I'm looking for right there. Um, still kept orthopedic surgery as my second choice. And then I, as I bounced around a little bit more, I think uh, being a pediatrician would be probably my third because I'm, I'm kind of a kid at heart anyways. And I, I like dealing with kids at the same time. So <laughs> well, those, are, those would be my top three. 
yeah, if, if, if the medical school uh, um, option continues. Yeah, absolutely. And you, how long did you end up staying in the program? You might have mentioned it earlier. Yeah, so I was in the program for uh, uh, basically it's called the first two blocks, uh, so uh, six months. So okay. still still in the first year, so not not long, but uh, I got through the what the, a lot of people consider the most difficult blocks, and then got into the systems blocks. Uh, so that's where I pick up with the uh, I'd be back in uh, uh, neuro block, which was the last one that I left. So I'd pick up and go from there, and it would be uh, about a, a year's worth of finishing up the systems blocks, and then I'd be in my clinical rotation at that point in time. Wow. Okay. Um, so you spent so much of your life um, of it being out of control and you just consistently adapting. You finally get into a program that you've sort of chosen for yourself and you have this major life hurdle thrown at you with the situation of your family's health. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point do you make the decision that it's time to focus on, to focus on that, to focus on family and to take yourself out of one of the first things you've kind of chosen for yourself in, sure. in, in a long time. Yeah. And it was, it was uh, definitely a decision that weighed on me a lot. Um, right. When I was, you know, hunkered down for med school, I was studying 15 hours a day. I, I had zero life. Um, and that's yeah. just, you, know, you expect that that's the way it's going to be. You're getting thrown uh, essentially a semester's worth of material in five days. And you're literally memorizing 1000 slides per week to take an exam every Monday. So as far as um, that process, it was tough. I knew it was going to be tough, but I was still dealing uh, my first three months of med school. I was actually still technically active duty. So I was still dealing with Marine Corps issues, still trying to get my pay squared away, still trying to get my resignation completed so I could be separated from the Marine Corps. Uh, on top of that, you know, I had the med school curriculum that I was dealing with too on, on a daily basis. Um, so once I got through those first two blocks and I got to go home for the holidays for my uh, two-week break from, from my exams is when I noticed the significant decline in my father's health. And I, and I you know, just had the gut feeling that some, something's going to happen here in the next six months and I got, I got to start figuring things out. Um, I thought I had more time because I, I did want to get through the 10-week neuro block, which would have put me to roughly April. Um, but leave it to the government. They had a different say. And for whatever reason, I checked my mail uh, on a Tuesday, which I never did. I usually checked it on the weekend after I had a little bit of a breathing room classes. I just happened to check it that day and got notification from, uh, uh, the VA and the GI bill authorities. And I just was reading the back as far as what my options were for adding or dropping and whatnot. Um, because I was under the impression that I was uh, required to add or drop only on the systems block approach because med school is a different curriculum than the undergraduate system of semesters. And that was not the case. In fact, this is two o'clock on the final day of the ad drop schedule for the undergrad, which means that was the final day I had to make a decision whether or not I, I, I could drop her or not and continue through med school. So I'm running over to the finance officer to find the lady that I need to get an answer from, and she had taken off for the day. So my frustration is I am making a $42,000 decision right now because if I didn't drop by the ad drop date, which was then, I would take on the semester's worth of tuition, which the whole purpose of going to South Dakota in the first place was that I was going there for free off the GI Bill. So I, uh, I had to make the decision right then and there that, uh, you know, obviously I always put family first. And a lot of the reason I went into medicine was because I, I wanted an occupation that I could, you know, care for my family and, and, uh, and, and take care of those that, that are around me. And so um, it wasn't as, as difficult a choice because, uh, you know, I'd been thinking about this stuff for two weeks as far as what I'm going to do when the time comes. And that was the time coming. And that was 
you know, the mail being answered literally and uh, making the decision to, to, uh, to have to drop. And uh, the fortunate thing was the school was very accommodating, giving me a multitude of options and uh, allow me to uh, get down there and, and, and help my mom out with my father before he passed in June. So. Oh, well, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, thank you very much. Yeah, it was uh, yeah. difficult, yeah. but, uh, you know, it had been the long goodbye with Alzheimer's disease, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, okay, so looking back, you've had such a full career, very diverse. Is there anything specifically that you are most proud of? Yeah, I think the, the things that I'm most proud of is the uh, relationships that I gained through all these processes, um, through all these challenges, I should say. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the rigorous environment in Virginia Military Institute, um, I have lifelong friends from there. Right. Friends that put on the same equation that I, I have from guys that I'm friends with uh, my entire life from, from the age of four or five. I'm still friends with all my guys from high school. Um, and I put them on the same, uh, same plane as the guys that I met at the Virginia Mill Institute. Uh, my roommates, all the guys that were on the rugby team, uh, we're, we're lifelong friends. We talk uh, on almost a weekly basis still to this day. Same thing with all the friends that I, I developed and the relationships I had with uh, my peers in the Marine Corps, my fellow officers, and then especially uh, the relationships I had for the units that I was in charge of, uh, the, the, uh, the, junior, the junior Marines and even the senior enlisted that, uh, you know, mentored me and, and, and taught me how to be a leader because what they don't know is I learned a hell of a lot more from them than I probably ever taught them. And uh, so those are the things that, you know, I really cherish. It was, it was those experiences. Um, yeah, so I, I would say always number one is, is the, uh, the relationships you build through those processes. And, and this, the same thing with even, even getting into medical school. Uh, you know, I'm Nick, the old guy at uh, 38 years old. <laughs> the school. token old guy. Exactly. And I'm actually the age of most of the professors and physicians. So for me, it's a little bit different of a perspective. And uh, just having, uh, you know, interaction and relations with, you know, essentially 23, 24-year-olds that are fresh out of school and might not have as much life experience as I have. They have way bigger brains than I have. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think that the relationships I've made with, with those guys put more perspective onto me as well as, as far as, hey, these are the challenges that uh, younger people face. Uh, these are things that I might not be thinking about because I guess technically I'm in a generation gap now, even though I don't feel as old I, I think right. I'm old. so it's it's one of those things that like I said it, it's it all boils down to the relationship you have and I think that goes with any occupational field you're in or any any avenue of life is it's it's all about how you how you interact with other people and and that's the biggest things that I took away from those things well I think that that's a really sweet and important sentiment um that you can have all these accolades and still at the end of the day the thing that you're most proud of is is your relationships I think I think that's that says a lot um so looking forward, looking at the future, um, what, what does the future hold for your business? Are, are you thinking of going back to med school? Um, what does the next 10 years look like? Well, answering this question right now and then answering it two minutes from now, I'll change my answer every time. Right. That's what I anticipated. It sounds yeah, so, like you change a lot yeah, in a good way. Yeah, no, I, I hope it's a good way. But, uh, you know, I, I, I like having the option to go back. So that's always a staple plan is, is med school is still there for me. And, and that won't go away anytime soon. Um, the, the instability of, of the business is that, you know, um, the struggles and the challenges I face of, of starting a new business is, is, you know, building that customer base and, and seeing if it's economically sustainable. Um, 
you know, right now we're, we're just facing those new challenges of letting people know that we exist. And, you know, I see steady progress each day. Uh, each week always throws different curveballs at me, but it's just a matter of, you know, are we going to take a step back and swing at those curveballs or are we going to let the next pitch come down and hopefully it's, uh, you know, fastball down the middle. Um, that's the one I'm waiting for. And, you know, I think we're getting there because, uh, um, you know, each, each day the marketing efforts are, are improving each day, the, the drivers and the hiring process is improving. So ideal situation for me on the horizon is the business takes off and maybe I don't go back to school for another nine years, right. but you know, worst case scenario, uh, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm really headstrong. I, I never really quit anything. So that was a, a like for me in the med school thing that I didn't want to feel like I was quitting. Cause I was like, I said that tore me up saying that I had to take a step back from something I worked so hard to get to, but uh, same thing with the business. I've worked really hard to get to this point and get it off the ground. Uh, there's certainly a need out here um, and not, not to be my own chest, but hundred percent of the people I talk to and I tell them about the idea and the fact that we exist. Uh, they all say, we don't know why something like this hasn't existed in the past. So right. that's, that's encouraging. Uh, but, you know, I see this business, if, if, if it takes off great, like I said, I'm not back in school, but worst case, you know, I, I gave it my best. I put everything into it. And if, if it doesn't succeed, you know, this time next year, I'm back in school and, and going down the path I was originally on anyways. But, but yeah, you're, you're building something new and you're building something valuable. Definitely. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the ordinary is really about, it's supposed to be a collection of tools that, regular people can use to succeed at work and to achieve their career goals. And my real interest behind creating uh, an episode about adaptation really just came from my mm-hmm. own like shortcomings. Like when I think about my goals, I'm really hesitant to change. Um, sure. But I know that it's imperative that I do. And um, when I, when I hear, when I hear you talk about pivoting, not once, but pivoting so consistently, um, I really want to pick your brain on advice that you have for me and for listeners on um, how to adapt in the various stages that come along with that. So first, how do people people have that feeling, that same feeling that you did, whether it be you know to leave medical school to to make a certain decision to go into the military after college, um, when you have a feeling that you need to change but you're scared to kind of act on it? What what kind of advice do you have for those sort of situations? Yeah, and I, th- I think I've said it a couple of times, but the biggest thing is is just being able to to listen and and observe. And I think when people are able to do that, they're recognizing um, that they are, they do need to remain a little bit more humble in certain situations. And I think humbleness, pride, and, and observation and listening are all kind of interconnected. Um, and it's one thing that that I think helped me along the way to remain flexible and be able to adapt was when I got put into different situations or, you know, sometimes forced into different situations, you know, it's just, it's just listening. And then just having the, um, I guess, courage to admit that you don't have all the answers and, and not to, to, to try and, and make other people believe that you do. I mean, sometimes that's, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes that's necessary, but I'm, I'm there to learn from the people that have gone before me because who wants to reinvent the wheel and, and waste people's effort. But, you know, I think, as long as you start listening and you, you recognize the challenges that you face, that allows you to make those decisions to make the changes that you need to be successful uh, in the long run. So, yeah. um, and, and then once you do make that decision to make the change, I think the biggest thing is, is, is just putting everything behind it and, you know, going through just sheer determination and drive. And then at the end of the day, it's just, you know, never give up, use that, 
strong-headedness that you know whatever type of personality you have and just just realize that no matter what you know the, the, if, if the end state makes sense and you have the resources and know how to get the resources or whatever to, to get to that end state then you just have to give it everything you have despite the obstacles that you're going to face because everybody's going to face obstacles and challenges and, and just have that no quit mentality I think I think helps a lot and just kind of plow through them sure so you so you wouldn't be in a, a proponent of faking it till you make it that sometimes helps. Um, <laughs> if you're, if you are thrown on the spot, uh, I think that I think faking it till you make it is basically if, if you have enough foundational knowledge behind you, you right. can kind of, uh, basically give yourself a little delay strategy or, or maybe, uh, you know, push, push things off until somebody can actually get the correct answer. I think faking it till you make it is, is, is a survival tactic that, right. that does come in useful. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, you do got to have the answers when it comes to some of these situations and, and finding those answers or at least seeking people who have the answers. It, it does require that. But sometimes you get thrown in a situation where it's like, yeah, confidence and saying something as if you truly believe it might be the, uh, the determining factor to get people to follow you in certain situations. Right. Well, might not always work out. So that goes right back to being flexible and adaptive because you might come across as being super confident and like, Hey, this is the plan. And then in your gut, you might like, well, we might change this plan on the fly, but we're just going to have to do it because we have to execute right now. Um, sometimes that, you know, that, that comes out in people's favors, but yeah. all, all in all, everything's a learning experience. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of times you have to swallow your pride. Um, I think the only people that don't have to swallow pride are the people that know everything. And I've never met somebody that knows everything. So everybody has to take a little slice of humble pie uh, shield that pride every once in a while and just just know when to do that and when to flex it. Absolutely. Ryan, it has been so inspiring uh, to talk to you and get a perspective from, you know, a lifelong learner and uh, someone who has really mastered this art of adaptation. I uh, thank you so much for your candor and your insight. Um, and uh, I wish you the best of luck in your uh, in your current venture. And uh, thanks for coming on. No, my pleasure, Trish. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. Have a good night. You too. Thank you.